Well, a couple of years ago, I took a uh, personal retreat at a Benedictine monastery down in northern New Mexico. It's called the Monastery of Christ in the Desert, Um, and it's a beautiful place. It's tucked away in uh, the Chama River Canyon. It's 13 miles down an old dirt road with no cell phone reception and one computer with dial-up internet access. Um, There's about 40 monks that live at Christ in the Desert Monastery, and they pray together, uh, chanting the Psalms seven times a day, beginning at 4 a.m. every single morning. The rest of the day, they silently work. They share meals uh, silently together. And as a guest there, uh, I was invited to participate at all levels, to pray with them every day at all their services, to share in meals, and to share in this idea of silence. Um, and it was amazing. In fact, I went back the following year, and I plan on going again Uh, this year. Um, You see, I connected with God down there in ways that I don't hear. And part of that is just being in a different place. You know, when you go somewhere different or new or out in creation, you connect with God maybe in a deeper way. Uh, Part of that was the beauty of that place. Uh, Part of it was the silence, right? When you sort of um, get rid of all of the noise going on in our lives. Um, But I feel like there was something else that was there too. For me, it felt like a magical place. Um, Now, maybe if I was a monk and had taken vows of poverty and celibacy, I wouldn't say that. But but for me, personally, let me tell you why it felt like a magical place. You see, there were things there, physical things, actual things that feel magical, that almost feel like portraits or doorways into a deeper connection with a mysterious God. Let me show you a few uh, more pictures. There's beautiful paintings on the walls. Paintings of Jesus, painting of the saints. Um, Vivid, colorful paintings that seem to just draw and capture your attention. Sometimes you just find yourself sitting there and staring at these paintings. The chapel itself, where all the services are held, um, is right below the cliffs. And there's these big windows at the top where you can just see out the windows. And I would sit there during the services and I would sing along with the monks. But I'd also find my, my gaze just looking out these windows at the cliffs and the sky. And then, of course, at nighttime or when you're getting up at 3.45 in the morning to walk to the prayer service, um, where I stayed is a little ways down the road. Uh, the chapel is just lit up uh, against the sky and you can see the stars. And it just has this... This luminescence that you almost can't put into words. During the Sunday Mass there, um, there's incense uh, burning in the air. It fills up the whole chapel. There's uh, crosses, there's candles, there's robes, there's uh, big Bibles. There's lots of singing, lots of praying, chanting, um, lots of bowing and kneeling. And this whole time you're, you're, you're moving and you're, you're watching and you're smelling and you're tasting and you're you're hearing and you're seeing and you're feeling. You're, all of your senses are being engaged. And there's, there's just something magical about it. It's magical because it feels like all of these different physical elements are mediating God's presence in a really unique and powerful way. Last week, uh, we kicked off this new series Um, and said that if you lived 600 years ago during the medieval era, or you lived in a monastery in the desert uh, today, that these mediators of faith, these things that mediate your faith, would have been very, very 
normal, that people back then connected with God, they understood God, they knew God, they experienced God through these mediators. A mediator is just something or someone that connects you to something or someone else. But today, in our Western modern culture, our lives are very different. Our society is very different. We live in a culture of what I described last week of immediatism, meaning we want everything immediately. We want it without mediators. We want things now. We don't want it later. We don't want any time to pass between now and when we have our needs fulfilled. We want things easily without any hard work. And we want to get things on our own, right? We want to be independent. I want to be able to get things for myself without any outside help. That's really what immediately means, unmediated, without any help or without anything else that stands between me and the thing that I want. And we even approach God this way. And so last week we looked at some really big uh, concepts and we walked through history and looked at some big things that have taken place between the middle, medieval era and now. And, and if you weren't here um, and you missed that, I highly encourage you to go back because that sort of set the table uh, for everything we're going to do for the next few weeks because I ended that sermon. I raised all these kind of questions and I didn't really give any answers. And we ended by saying, maybe we need to reclaim some of those mediators. Maybe we've lost some that actually could be helpful for our faith. And so today, in the next three weeks, I want to give you some suggestions for some mediators of faith that we might reclaim. And if that still doesn't make sense to you, like, what is a mediator of faith? Well, just hang in there, because today I want to give you the first example. The first big group of mediators I think maybe we need to claim are material objects as mediators of faith. And let me show you how this actually worked in the Bible because this might help. Here's a whole bunch of examples. The first is the Ark of the Covenant. You remember Raiders of the Lost Ark? Anybody? The old folks remember Raiders of the Lost Ark, right? Uh, in Exodus 25, the Ark of the Covenant is described there and in other places. Um, and it was basically a box. It was made of wood and it was covered in uh, gold um, overlay. And then there were some statues on top of it of some angels. And God told the Israelites to put a copy of the Ten Commandments and the law in this box. But he also said that this is where they will meet with him. That when you meet with me with this object and at this place, I will meet with you. The box isn't God, but somehow the box mediated God's presence with them. Uh, here's another one. In part of the laws that God gives to the Israelites, he tells them to make these tassels. These tassels that hang down from the sides of their garments. And they were basically just strings, these blue strings that hung down. And you might even see some Orthodox Jews today who still have these kind of tassels. And God said, every time you see these tassels, I want you to be reminded of all the laws and the commandments that I gave you. Now, God could have said, all the laws and commandments that I gave you are really, really important, so don't forget them, Right? But he gave them this visual cue, this, this actual object that they wore on their clothes all the time so they would see it and it would mediate their remembering of how important these commandments were to their faith and to their lives. There's also a story in Numbers 21 about a bronze snake. 
You might have read this story before if you grew up like going to Sunday school or something. The Israelites are wandering in the wilderness. Remember, they wander in the wilderness for 40 years, and suddenly they come to this area, and all these poisonous snakes start biting the people, and many people start getting sick and dying. And so the people call out to God to help them, and they even start confessing their sin to God because in their mindset, obviously all this bad stuff is happening to us because we must have been sinful and done something wrong. That's the way they thought, and so they just started confessing their sin, and they asked God to help them. And God decides to help them out. Now, God could have just like snapped his God fingers, right? And just healed them and protected them from these poisonous snakes. But that's not what he did. He told them to sculpt and forge a snake, a sculpture of a snake out of bronze. And then to take this sculpture and raise it up on a pole. And when the people gazed at the actual sculpture, then that would mediate their faith that God would heal them and it would mediate God's healing power given to them. All through this very physical material object. Another story uh, from the book of Joshua, when the people finally do enter into the promised land, they cross through the Jordan River, and then Joshua, who's leading them at that time, tells them, stop, and he takes a representative from each of the 12 tribes, and he tells them to go into the, the riverbed and to get a big stone and to pile up this big uh, pile of 12 stones so that they can remember this moment that God persevered and walked with them through the desert and then eventually led them into the promised land. And he even says, and the implication is you're going to come back here, you're going to maybe make pilgrimages to this place, and you're going to be crossing it, and you're going to see these stones, and children are going to say to their parents, why are these stones here? What do they mean? And it's in that moment that you can tell them the story, and you can remember that God saved Israel, and he persevered with them. And he's always there to save and persevere with Israel. And it can be a new encounter of faith for you. These stones can mediate something new. Or how about the sacrifices in the book of Leviticus, right? This is the book where we kind of read one or two chapters and then just skip to the next book because the whole first half of the book is these long, tedious descriptions of all of these animal sacrifices, and there's a lot to talk about there, but here's just one question I'd like to ask. Couldn't God have forgiven the Israelites of their sins without requiring them to sacrifice animals? I mean, couldn't there have been another way for them to come to God and say, we've been sinful, and would you please forgive us, and we want to offer our gratitude to you? And yet, God uses this extremely tangible, earthy, messy, bloody process of slaughtering these animals, right? Spilling blood, carving away the guts, burning the flesh. And at the end of the day, it was this act in a very real and tangible way that mediated God's mercy and his reconciliation with the people. Uh, here's another one. Water is an extremely rich mediating substance in many stories in the bible there's one story it's a great story we should i don't think we've ever like looked at it on a sunday morning here but it's from second kings chapter five and it's about this guy named naaman he's a syrian army commander so he doesn't even live in israel but he gets this skin disease called leprosy and he hears that there's prophets in israel who can heal people of those things and so he travels to israel and elisha is a prophet there and elisha hears that he's come to be healed of his leprosy and elisha sends word to naaman 
And the message is, go down to that Jordan River and bathe in it, wash in the water seven times, and then you'll be healed. And do you know what Naaman says? He actually gets really mad. Why in the world do I have to do that? It's just water, right? If I wanted to bathe in water, I could have done that back in Syria. I didn't come all this way. I mean, I can take seven baths in Syria. I didn't come all this way looking for healing to just go bathe myself in a river. And yet, that water was magical. That's what Elisha knew. Not magical in the sense that it had like magical inherent properties so that if anyone happened to be walking by the river that day and they stumbled seven times in the river and they had a disease and they said the right spells, it would all be magically like go away. It wasn't magical in that sense. It was magical in the sense that if Naaman went down there, his washing himself in the river would mediate his faith that Israel's God could heal him. And the water itself would mediate this, this picture of being washed clean of this disease. Jesus does the same thing. Remember one time there's a guy born blind and Jesus comes and he meets him and he stoops down, he spits on the ground, he mixes his spit with mud and places it in the guy's eyes. How's that for a material object, right? And then he says, go to the pool and wash your eyes. And it will mediate your healing. John the Baptist uses water to baptize people. People are wanting to turn away from their sins and turn back to God. And so he says, come and be dunked in the river. Just dunked right in the river. And it will symbolize and mediate your turning away from sins. Now, can you repent of your sins without being baptized or without being dunked in the river? Of course you can. But for John the Baptist, it was this important mediating object that symbolized and and helped people to understand God's washing and God's healing and God's uh, ability to be able to give somebody a new life and a new trajectory and a new way. And Christians would follow this practice all throughout the book of Acts. This is described. Paul talks about water having these properties. In fact, it becomes synonymous with somebody turning to Jesus, being baptized in water to represent the new life that they're given. Now, I could go on and on. There's a lot of other examples in the Bible about people using these very material objects to draw near to God. But I want to turn the corner and ask, which of them might be helpful for us? I mean, we could have gone through church history because there's a whole lot of other material objects that are used as well by Christians all throughout the ages. Are there some of those that we might consider? Are there some of those that might be helpful mediators of faith? For us, I want to just offer you a few suggestions this morning, and after I offer them, I'll I'll talk about a few dangers with these suggestions as well. So here's the first suggestion, Uh, the visual arts, the visual arts. I don't think we appreciate the visual arts today, especially in American churches, particularly traditional painting and sculpture, the way that people have over the centuries. One obvious example is icons. Icons are a specific style of painting that has been used mostly in the Eastern Orthodox Church for over 1,500 years. Um, Icons are always painted of the saints, one of the saints, um, or Jesus, or even the Holy Trinity. Um, This is probably the most famous icon that was ever painted by a Russian um, named Andrei Rublev, and it's of the Trinity. 
And there's a lot going on here that we don't have time to unpack. But icons are not meant to be entirely realistic. They're always painted in a two-dimensional style. They use vivid colors. You don't see that here because it's 600 years old and it's faded over time. But if you were to visit the Greek Orthodox Church just down the road, the big gold dome, it's called Assumption Cathedral, you would walk in and be overwhelmed by the icons and the colors on all of their walls. And icons play a huge role in the Orthodox faith as mediators, as windows or portals into a deeper mystery. And maybe you're sitting here thinking, um, isn't there a verse in the Bible, isn't it one of the Ten Commandments that says we're not supposed to like, make images of God, right? There is one of the commandments, but you know what it says? It says, don't make, and in Old English it was translated graven images. And the Hebrew word means idol. Don't make idols that you then bow down and worship instead of God. But that's not what icons are. Icons aren't worshipped by people of faith. Icons are actually portals into worship by people of faith. In fact, here's a great way to think about this. The word icon just means image in Greek. And we actually use the word icon all the time. How do we use it? On our screens, right? If you have a laptop or a computer at home or your phone, right? There's a bunch of icons on there. And icons are just a little visual representation, but they're a representation of something else. And so you go double click on the icon and the icon is not the program. The icon opens up another window or launches a new application. It takes you somewhere else. And that's what these icons are meant to do. They're meant to take you into a deeper experience of the mystery of God. And that's what the visual arts, many other artistic styles, can often do as well. And it might be something we need to reclaim a little bit more. Here's another suggestion. Um, Objects that you can smell or touch Uh, Incense has been used by people of faith all the way back to ancient Israel. um, The sweet aroma of incense represented people's prayers ascending to God, or it could represent God's all-consuming holiness and presence among us. In fact, early Christians used incense, and they would use frankincense and myrrh in the incense as a reminder of Jesus' birth. Remember, those are the gifts given to him, and as a reminder of his death because those were the spices used to anoint him. Some people carry beads with them, right? Have you heard of rosary beads? Um, Rosary beads or other kinds of beads are a reminder. People carry these beads, and they're a reminder to pray about something. And in fact, sometimes they'll run their fingers over the beads, and it's almost like a kinesthetic action that is somehow mediating their prayers to God. Or you can carry a little wooden cross in your pocket. I have this little wooden cross. It was made in Bethlehem, and I carried it for a while in my pocket, and every single time I put my hands in my pocket for my keys or my phone or my wallet, I felt this cross, and it, it reminded me who I am and what Jesus did for me. It was just like the tassels, right? These things that you can smell or that you can touch or that you can engage with, they're like the tassels. May they be reminders mediating something important, something that you wouldn't get if you didn't have these actual objects. 
Here's a couple more, and these are from our everyday lives. How about food, right? Food is something that plays a role every few hours in our lives, and yet it can actually be a mediating object of faith. We don't think about that in the Bible, but it was used all the time. The ancient Israelites often used food in their celebrations. Many of their festivals were around food. The Passover festival, at the heart of that, they would eat this sort of, this type of flat bread that was always a reminder of how God had liberated them from Egypt and would be a reminder to them in the future that God will continue to liberate them as they call on his name. But just as important as feasting with food was fasting from food. Because people fasted when they grieved something, whether it was some loss in their life or even their own sin. You see, it wasn't, it wasn't people knew that they could just say, well, I'm sad over losing this person in my life, or I'm sad over how selfish I am and how I treated that person yesterday. But it was something else to say, I'm so sad that I'm not going to eat I'm going to express my grief through the withdrawal of food, from abstaining from food. I'm going to express my repentance. And so this very material object of food, whether it's from feasting or fasting, whether it's for consuming it to celebrate something God has done or removing it to sort of grieve or lament something going on in your life, it plays a really important mediating role, which is why the church began observing the season of Lent. For 40 days leading up to Holy Week, for hundreds of years, churches and people have fasted from various things, but mostly food in their lives. And then on Easter Sunday, they feast. You have a big old celebration and you eat this massive meal to celebrate Jesus's resurrection. What if we gave food, this thing that we consume all the time in our lives, what if we gave it a more intentional aspects in our journeys of faith. Here's one more, and we already mentioned this from the Bible. How about water? How about water? I, um, I remember the first time uh, I went to a Roman Catholic church growing up. I grew up Baptist in the South, right? And, but there was this Irish family that lived down the street, and they had a bunch of kids because they were Irish, right? And uh, I was friends with them, and they invited me to their church, and I went to their Roman Catholic church with them, and it was so weird. Like, there was all these things happening, and I didn't understand any of them. People were doing signs, and they were bowing and standing, and they were saying all these prayers and these creeds, and I didn't know the words to any of them. And, um, and I remember the mom of the family coming to me before the service and saying, hey, there's a part in the service where we're all gonna go down front and we're gonna take communion. But she didn't say take communion. She used some other word and I didn't even understand what she meant. We're gonna go down front and do it, but you're not supposed to go do that because you're not a member of the Catholic church. So just don't take part in that. And I just kind of, not. I mean, I was like, sure, whatever. You know? And then that time came during the service and I remember everyone stood up and they were going down um, and I felt kind of ashamed and embarrassed. Like, well, I don't want to be the only one sitting here not doing this thing. Everyone's going to think I'm like a horrible person or something. So I just stood up and I went down and followed the family down there. And the mom was in the front and there was like seven of them. And so I was kind of behind. So she didn't see me. And right when I got up to the priest, he was about to hand me the bread. Out of the corner of her eye, the mom saw me. And like a secret service agent diving in front of a bullet, it was like, no. And she told something to the priest, and he was like, oh, I got it. And I think he, like, blessed me or did something else, but I didn't take part. And it was, it was one of those 
weird church experiences that I think we've all had, right? Everyone's had some weird church experience like that. But that's not the thing that I remember was most weird about my first visit to this church. I remember walking in the door, and at the entrance to the sanctuary, there was this little bowl of water. And people were walking in and, like, dipping their hand in it. And they start, They would do different things, and I think they were doing crosses on their head and different kind of stuff. And they were treating it like it was magical. And I remember looking at it and thinking, it's just water. Like, there's nothing magic. I mean, he just got it out of the faucet, right? It's just water. And then here I am, 30 years later, at a Benedictine monastery saying, the water's so magical here, Right? It's made me think, what if there was a bowl of water in the sanctuary? And what if when we walked in, what if when I walked in, I, I dipped my hands in it and, it, and it transported me back for just a moment to the day I was baptized, to remembering that I'm a child of God and I was marked on that day when I gave my life to Jesus and following him. Well, what if it transported me away from the conversation I was just having with my friends, away from the coffee that I was just pouring, and the conversation was good, and the coffee was good. Those are good things, right? But what if for just a moment, it reminded me of a deeper reality? What if it reminded me that whenever I walk into this building and I carry all kinds of selfishness and sin from the previous week, that God can wash me of What if it reminded me that the wounds that I carry from the previous week, which we all have, God can wash those and heal them. You see, the transporting, mediating power of these simple objects? I mean, maybe you're here today, and I don't know where you are on your journey of faith, but maybe you're here and you've never even been baptized Or maybe you were baptized when you were a little baby, but you don't even remember it. It wasn't meaningful for you. And you're a Christian, or or you're in the process of becoming a Christian, or you think you want to become a Christian, or you're not sure, but you kind of want to give your life to something new and something that would help you follow a different way, and you want to let go of an old life and an old self and an old way and embrace something new. Is there any more powerful way to do that than being baptized in water? to symbolize and represent this new life, this this washing that only God can do on the inside, not just the outside. It's a powerful act with this simple H2O water, so powerful that people have been doing it for 2,000 years. Now, let me address a few dangers real quickly when it comes to engaging any of these material objects as mediators. Um, Here's danger number one, uh, turning mediating objects into good luck charms, right? That's always a danger, taking any of these things, whether it's water or uh, pictures or art or icons, and and making them like a rabbit's foot, right, that you just carry around because somehow they bring you good luck and they are going to protect you from any bad things that ever happen, but then something bad happens, so what do you do then, you know? So it's easy, it's possible to turn any of these things into just like good luck charms, right? And a lot of people did that in the medieval era. And that became a huge 
danger. But here's the second danger. Danger number two is overreacting to danger number one. You see, that's what the reformers did. They saw people had turned all sorts of these things into good luck charms, which are really like idols. And so they went into churches and they stripped everything away and they went into people's lives and they stripped everything away and eventually we got to this place where it was just about me and a personal relationship with God and that's it. And there's nothing else there. What if we found a middle ground? What if we remained aware of danger number one, but we admitted that most of us are probably living in danger number two? Maybe not even for theological reasons, maybe just because we're, we're consumed by this sense of the immediate. What if we took a risk? And what if we followed some of those suggestions I made? And those were just a few suggestions. There's so many more. But what if we began to see that there's objects in our lives that could have a more powerful role in helping us connect with God at a deeper level? But there's a third danger, real quick. Danger number three. Engaging mediators with an immediate mindset. You see, if your mindset is like, ooh, something new, right? And you go out and get a whole bunch of incense and burn it, and like a few days later, you're like, okay, what's the new next thing, right? Or you go get a whole bunch of icons, and you sit in front of an icon for five minutes, and you're like, I got nothing, right? It's just not, it's not happening. Like, where's the encounter? It's just, I don't get it, Right? The problem is you want something immediately, and I want something immediately. That's what we want. We want to move to something that's going to give us sort of this immediate satisfaction, and that's not how these mediators work. They're not immediate. They take time. They take patience. They take presence, real presence, away from all the other distractions in our lives, they take a willingness to be slowly drawn in, quietly invited in by something or by someone who's not concerned with meeting our immediate needs. See, that's not really on God's agenda. And so with all of those thoughts in mind, Here's how we want to sort of wrap up today. We're going to engage the most significant material object that mediated the faith of early followers of Jesus, the bread and wine of communion. Jesus used bread and wine at the Last Supper, which was a Passover meal. He, he gave them these two elements, and he basically said, this bread will represent my body, which is broken for you, And this wine will represent my blood, which is shed for you. And it's a mystery how they represent those things. I don't understand it. I don't even know how to explain it. I mean, I don't think we we use gluten-free bread and juice here just to make it simple. I don't know that they change into some sort of new chemical compound in that way. but, But I do know this. There's something unique about these elements that communicate something. They communicate that everyone is welcome at the table. They communicate that we're nourished by God. That when we take these elements, we are nourished and fed on his grace. 
They communicate a deep and profound mystery about Jesus' death and Jesus' resurrection. That when we take these elements, they proclaim, Paul says, they proclaim his death and resurrection even if we don't feel it very much. And so today, there's four communion tables up here. And uh, I actually added some of these other elements to each of the tables. Um, there's an icon over there of the Trinity, that same icon at that table that you can look at as you take communion. There's a cross here, at this one to remind you of what Jesus did. There's a bowl of water at this table to maybe remind you of your baptism, of the way Jesus has washed you. You can even dip your fingers in it if you like. Dan's lighting some incense over there at that table that you can smell as you take communion. And so during the next song, I can just invite you. We're going to sing a couple songs. In the next couple songs, I invite you to come forward, come to one of these tables, and you could just break off the piece of bread and dip it in the juice, and you can take it right there. And anyone is welcome. Everyone is welcome. Anyone who wants to express their faith in Jesus and what he did for them, whether that's the first time you're ever doing this and expressing that faith, or whether you've been doing this your whole life and you just need to be reminded of the grace that he offers, Anyone and everyone is welcome. So before we do that, let's all stand together and say a prayer of confession.